Hey, everyone. It's been a minute since I've launched a podcast episode, so I'm excited to be releasing this one. And I've got a couple more in the in production right now, so hopefully we'll have a few coming out in relatively quick order and hopefully get back to a more consistent publishing schedule. It's been a busy little couple of years, but this past year in particular has been very busy at Kind Wealth, and, and I've been doing work with the Criterion Institute. For those of you who have been listening to the podcast, you'll know about their work in gender equality and gender lens investing. Episode 30 of this podcast was with the founder, Joy Anderson, talking about a lot of their work. So I'd highly recommend you check that out. And one of the exciting things that I've been helping them with, among others, is getting their podcast off the ground. And that's actually, you know, just a really interesting podcast. I think if you're listening to this one and enjoy it, you'll probably enjoy that. So once that releases, I will share that news on this podcast and probably even share one of their episodes here on a bit of a podcast takeover. So I hope that will be interesting for everybody here. And uh, with that, let's get on to the podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Climate change is widely recognized as an existential threat to humanity. Chief among the contributors to climate change is our food systems. The advent of modern industrial farming brought with it a sharp increase in our ability to feed the planet. Yet this industrialization has been so rapid and so extreme that we're now recognizing how unhealthy and unsustainable our practices have become. Despite these advances, the system will crack under the pressure of our expected population growth, with the UN predicting global population to hit 10 billion by 2050. This is because animal agriculture is a wildly inefficient food source. The time and resources it takes to provide land, food, and water to raise animals for human consumption produces far fewer calories than the investment required to simply grow plants for us to eat. Recently, though, we have seen an explosion in the demand for healthier and more sustainable food choices, along with a flourishing of innovation. Enter today's guest, Elizabeth Alfano, founder and CEO of VegTech Invest, provider of the world's first pure-play ETF, investing in plant-based innovation. Launched in 2021, the VegTech Plant-Based Innovation and Climate ETF, ticker EATV, invests in a portfolio of high-growth global equities in a pure-play plant-based innovation and technology category. VegTech companies are those that are innovating with plants and plant-derived ingredients to create animal-free products for sustainable consumption. During this episode, Elizabeth and I have a wide-ranging conversation on all things related to our food systems and the innovation we're seeing in plant-based foods in particular. Our conversation runs the gamut from discussing the size and scope of the problem with modern industrialized factory farming to more sustainable alternatives such as plant-based burgers like Beyond Meat, popular non-dairy alternatives like oat milk, advances in cultured or aka lab-grown meat and cheeses, and all sorts of other fascinating innovations. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end when we talk about how the VegTech ETF works and what companies the fund is investing in right now. With that, let's get on to the podcast. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I would love for you to just introduce yourself to everyone who's listening and kind of what you're working on, what you're passionate about. Yes, 100%. So I am the CEO of VegTech Invest. We are the advisor and creator of the world's first and only plant-based innovation ETF. So what that means is that we invest in companies that are innovating with plants and plant-derived ingredients to create animal-free products for sustainable consumption. By doing that, we impact climate change and food security. These are things and human health and planetary health and animal welfare. All these things are so near and dear to my heart. VegTech Invest and EatV, EatV is the ETF, E-A-T-V. Those things take the majority of my time, but I also host the Plant-Based Business Hour. And uh, between those two things, I'm pretty busy. Yeah, and so that's why you're so comfortable speaking (laughs) in a podcast format, huh? Yes, I do it all the time, just like you. I'm weekly and uh, I love it. 
And people are always saying to me, oh my gosh, your CEO, you just launched this first plant-based innovation ETF. Like, why are you still doing your podcast? But I can't give it up. I just, I love it. I love it. Yeah, it is pretty fun to be able to just chat with all sorts of fascinating folks about what they're working on. And it just forced, I also like it as a forcing mechanism to just keep me current and following and up to date. Yeah, I can understand that. So just tell us a little bit about the plant-based business hour. This is a good, I suspect a fair number of our listeners may find that an interesting conversation to listen to. Yeah, yeah. I host the leaders, be they CEOs or thought leaders or analysts or entrepreneurs or innovators, scientists who are all moving the needle and innovating for plants and plant-derived ingredients to be used as sustainable products to replace animal products. So hence the, then later I did the Eat ETF. And these folks are really shifting our global food supply system. So in speaking with them, I get to talk about things like shifting climate change, shifting food security, focusing on innovation, what new technologies are coming down the pipeline, really what we can expect to see in our lifetimes in the very near future in our global food supply system. What's going to be on our plate? Why? Who are the big folks moving the needle? And what levers are at play? When we'll see it happen? So that's what we discuss. And you can find it iTunes and Spotify. Awesome. Is it audio only or do you do, is it a video format as well? Right. So I like being live. So I do it live on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And then from there, I re-edit it to, or just kind of package it for a podcast. And it also becomes a blog post on my website and an article in Veganomist Magazine. And come October, I think we're going to have some really fun rebranding that I'll get to talk to everybody about later. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to hear about that. Yeah. Hey, so I'm curious, what's one of the kind of more recent ones that comes to mind in terms of the plant-based business hour that you thought was like a really fascinating conversation? I'm sure you love them all, but one that sort of jumps out at you. Gosh, I do really love them all. And I'll say, I think of seasons with the plant-based business hour. So some of my favorite older ones are the former co-CEO of Whole Foods, Walter Robb, talking about how in the 40 years that he's been working in food, he's never seen anything like the shift to plant-based products. The former CEO now passed away. That's why he's former CEO of Califia Farms, Greg Steltonpole. I mean, he had such a really interesting vision about where the food supply system was going in terms of just an equitable transition working with farmers and and getting animals out of the food supply system for the betterment of everyone that includes farmers and that includes animals that includes people's health and the soil and better for the soil so just all of the as we move away from monocropping so he was great now much more currently we've seen in the plant-based industry It's having a growth pain in terms of not having enough capacity, so not enough co-manufacturing opportunities to make more product. So everyone's looking at the headlines and saying like, oh, plant-based is down. Well, actually, it's because there's not enough capacity to grow this industry to meet the demand that's there. Recently, I've been talking to Mark Warner of Liberation Labs, talking about that next phase of really growing out the capital infrastructure. So these co-manufacturing plants for either plant-based options or the next step in technology. So fermented proteins and cultivated meat. It's wonderful to see all of the fun and fancy headlines about plant-based and how much money you're raising and what the joint venture is happening and what VCs are getting involved. But VCs tend to like bright and shiny objects. <laughs> they tend to go for the sexy yeah. and then no one is building out infrastructure. So that's just an enormous and obvious kind of oversight. So I think the industry suffered a little bit from that. And now we're seeing folks like Mark Warner and David Siskin really from Black and Veatch really take a look at like, okay, how do we build very expensive factories with very expensive machineries and get them online quickly. Very interesting. So I would be curious for you to unpack a little bit. You've dropped in a bunch of terms about things that are going on in the plant-based industry, maybe as a sort of intro into that, because there's a lot of directions we could go. What, uh, maybe I'll start with a more basic question. What, what makes you so passionate about this, about the space and why is it so important? Well, it's really the reason why I launched EatV, which I said is the plant-based innovation ETF that we have. 
it's because I'm 55. So I'm looking at 30 years on the planet and I can't think of a more impactful way to change so many different things that all need immediate attention. So as we look at climate change, probably don't have to mention to anyone listening now, that's a biggie. Food insecurity, we saw those food supply chains fall apart during COVID and again with the war in Ukraine. So that idea of being self-reliant and having our goal is and our the job we are tasked with is to make more food more nutritiously using fewer resources in a shorter amount of time, causing less damage. That's what we have to do on the planet right now. We're 7.7 billion people. We're going to 9.8 billion people by 2050. But you're not getting more land and you're not getting more water. So you have to better use your resources to feed a growing planet. That's just not animal agriculture because it's such an inefficient system with its land and water use and deforestation, et cetera. So, you know, you look at addressing food security and then, of course, you have animal welfare and then you have people's health, getting people connected back again to their food supply systems. Then you have antibiotic resistance. This 80 percent of the world's antibiotics are used on animals and factory farms because of the living conditions that they're kept in. Well, then people eat the meat and then they develop resistance to antibiotics. So when they're sick and they need them, they don't work in their system. And then you have pandemic risk. You you just look at how many things can I make a positive impact on in a very short amount of time, 30 years. It's not that much. My gosh, it's plant-based innovation solutions. I can't think of anything more impactful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you're speaking to people, I mean, I think one thing that happens to a lot of folks who you want to do good there's a lot of ways in which you can think about how you can kind of make a positive impact. And then you think about what's the sort of trade-off in terms of the inconvenience and the time, effort, and energy you have to go to, to make these cha- these lifestyle changes or these changes in your choices, whether that's how you invest your dollars or spend them or donate them and your own kind of practice and habits. At least from my standpoint, I think a lot about, okay, I can't do everything necessarily, but I can't. what I really want to try to do is like, what are those levers that I can pull that have the biggest impact? And then especially the ones that like for the level of kind of time, effort and energy that I put in. So if there are like ones that are no problem for me to make those switches, I definitely want to do those things or or there's like little inconvenience to me. How do you think about plant-based? I know, and I know this covers such a big area, but changing your kind of how you eat, making conscious choices about your, the consumption of what you consume, both, I guess, I I would say maybe primarily diet related to the sort of environmental and social, I mean, just, I'll just say the impact writ large, because I know that it crosses more than just environmental boundaries. How do you think about that sort of trade-off and like, is it worth it for somebody who really enjoys or isn't necessarily vegetarian, vegan, has not really thought a lot about their foods, like is that time, effort, and energy they're putting into it worth it for just one person to do that, make those types of changes? I'm wondering how you address those. Oh, my gosh. Perspectives. I like, you're saying so many fascinating things. I'm like writing notes to myself so I don't forget. Like, <laughs> right, right. Address all those things, yeah. Yes. Okay, so let me start. I hate to come back to Eat V again, but it's why we did it. Yeah, so no, please. So what an easy thing for people to do is to invest in these companies that are innovating. And you can do a one-stop shop with something like Eat V and hop on your Robinhood or Fidelity or Schwab or E-Trade or whatever's easy for you and feel like you're impacting the environment and the social spectrum for food and for also food justice and these kinds of things. What I love here is, sort of spoiler alert, we're about to officially launch this We haven't yet, so I'll just loosely talk about the numbers. You know, so much in the finance world, we're talking about measuring what you do and quantifying the impact that you have. We have a study coming out that loosely shows by investing in plant-based innovation, you have three times the impact that you actually have when you switch to a plant-based diet or vegan diet. So you can like with no effort, quadruple your efforts of shifting over to a plant-based diet, you get all that more impact when you're investing behind it. That's one way to feel like, hey, with really no effort, I can move the needle here. And if you 
go to a vegan diet, great. But maybe you don't and you just do it once a week. Well, you're still investing with triple the impact of a diet. And those numbers are going to come out probably by the time you edit this podcast, those numbers will be out. But, you know, just don't take our word for it. We have a third party who's doing the, the research. It's not us. But in addition to us coming to this conclusion, the Boston Consulting Group just recently came out with a study in July that said investing in plant-based innovation and alternative proteins is three times to 40 times more impactful than investing in alternative building materials, alternative road transportation, and alternative power. The reason for this is if you want to switch over to an electric vehicle, yikes, it's forty dollars to $60,000. You're probably not going to do that today. You're probably going to wait until your car conks out and then you'll do it. Whereas if you switch from a burger to a plant-based burger, just once or twice a week, you don't have to like up, pull up your whole life. You you can make that switch easily without a lot of money, without a lot of commitment, and do it immediately. And think about what it would take to pull all the planes out of existence and put back in more energy-efficient planes. That's going to huge capital intensive. is going to take a long time to do that. Same with building materials, but not plant-based. You can start making this switch right now, and so can industry. Making alternative foods out of chickpea, fava beans, soy, wheat, mung bean, that's stuff we can do right now. The options are there to shift your diet. And when you start shifting your diet or even investing in those companies that are innovating for this shift, you can immediately have an enormous impact, a large impact, three times to 40 times, let's say, for I would say much less energy. I think of like, what's it gonna take to put solar on your house? big financial commitment and big energy and times because we did it. We know like, oh gosh, it was so hard to find someone who would do it, first of all, and that made sense for our roof. And there weren't that many suppliers. And whereas, boy, that diet shift looks pretty easy compared to these things. So your original question was, is it worth your time? And I would say, oh my gosh, it's the thing most worth your time and your dollars. Yeah, that's great. I'm curious, uh, the... Out of the major sub kind of categories or industries within the food system. So for instance, like beef versus dairy versus pork, chick, where I've always understood that beef is the most environmentally damaging. And so if you're thinking about like, hey, I'm going to make some changes to my diet, which do you have shorthand for like, hey, here are the ones that kind of are the biggest levers you can pull if you're willing to make those changes to your diet? Yeah, I do. And I'm going to answer that in just a second. But I just kind of want to do a shout out to all the folks that are making a plant-based burger or plant-based sausage or plant-based bacon or any of these. I just want to say like, they've been getting some flack for like, oh, but is it a carrot? Like, is it mm -hmm. good enough? Like, is it clean enough? I just kind of want to smack those people around because <laughs> for the meat eater, it is such a healthy step in the right direction. Is it a carrot? No, it is not. It's probably pretty obvious when you pick up the package and scan the barcode at the grocery store. I don't think anyone really thought it was a head of lettuce. But it's, if you're on a vegan raw diet, yes, eating a Beyond Meat burger is a step backwards for you. But for the meat eater whose doctors told them to like, hey, cut it out, just mm -hmm. like roll it back, would you please? This is a huge step forward. You're getting a little bit of fiber. You're not getting cholesterol. You're not getting antibiotics, hormones. You're not getting animal heme. You're not getting ingredients that induce trimethylene and oxide. So is it perfect? No. Is it healthier? Yes, it is. So thank you and shout out to all those folks. So. Now, to answer your question, would it be beef or chicken or what have you? I would not switch from beef to chicken. That to me is like, oh, you're just treading water. You're just, let me give you an example. Yes, the environmental impact of beef is much more than chicken, much more. But did you know that Tyson produces more excrement? Just one company, there are many chicken companies, right? But just one produces more excrement than the entire United States. That statistic comes from Jer Jeremy Collar, who is the managing partner of Collar Capital, running $25 billion in the capital markets. He's also the co-founder of Fair Farm Animal Initiative Risk and Return. Helps meat and dairy companies realize what kind of financial risk they have out there for the pandemic risk that they incur, for the envir environmental greenhouse gas risk they incur, et cetera. So that stat comes from him. So you think like, okay, maybe it's less impactful for greenhouse gas emissions, but you know, 
where does all that excrement go? It's not like the chickens have indoor plumbing goes to your water and land. So it's, remember I said like, I kind of want to smack around the people who say like a plant-based burger isn't healthy enough because Mm -hmm. it's ridiculous. The world isn't vegan. It's healthy for the meat eaters. I also want to kind of smack around the folks that are like, oh, hey, if we just fix the emissions from cows, we've fixed it. We haven't. You're still deforesting so that you can feed all of those cows, even if you sprinkle a little bit of seaweed in their mix and their emissions are belching is less. You still have to water all those crops. And to do that, you cut down trees, put in crops, water all those crops. Those crops have protein and fiber. Do you feed that food to people? No, you feed it to animals. It's incredibly inefficient when there are people that need food. And that demand for food's only increasing as the population increases. It's more than just the emissions. It's deforestation, it's water, it's pandemic risk. I mean, so I wouldn't switch from beef to chicken, but yes, beef is the most egregious in terms of emissions. I would switch from beef to your Beyond or your uncut burger and your hooray bacon and your eat just eggs. And I, I would, if you're going to do a day where you switch, then really switch. Right. (laughs) Right. And of course, I think what I've done in this, not necessarily for everybody is like, I'm going to, with something like beef, I cut out, it doesn't have to be necessarily all or nothing. I mean, I think it'd be better for the planet if we all got to zero immediately, but like somebody's willing to say, Hey, I just won't eat any more steak. And that's going to cut 30% of the meat from my diet. Like you can start to move towards and half the time I'm going to have a veggie burger instead of a, or a plant-based burger instead of a beef burger. I was going to ask you though. So for me, like, and as much as I, I hate it and I actually wish that I weren't, the, the hamburger is still my like single favorite food. And so I've done that. I've said like, I'm not going to eat any other beef because I just like the health and the environmental impact of it are important to me and the cruel, the animal cruelty matters a lot to me. So it's like all of the things matter to me. And uh, I try to make it more like a once in a while indulgence and just really try to cut back on it. So I'm though quietly holding my breath for because and I like plant based burgers fine, but you know, they're not quite as good, but I'm quietly holding my breath for cultured uh, meat or lab grown meat, which is a lot less of a sexy term for it. How do you feel about that? And I'm curious what, where kind of where the industry's at on that. I know, is it Singapore that had surf or yes. sold cultured chicken? Yes. Okay. So of all the things we talk about, what you just said is probably the most important of this entire podcast, even more important than eat V, although I still want everyone <laughs> to go out and get eat V, but right. um, make whatever, there's no perfect, forget perfect, throw it right out the window. Make whatever step you can make that's easy for you. And for you, you're maybe cutting out steak and still allowing yourself hamburgers. Great. Rock on. I've never heard of anything better. Make whatever change you can do that's easy, that's accessible, that you can start today. I mean, if you're waiting to be perfect, you're going to wait forever and then nothing gets done. So I love your approach. And just from a business standpoint, all of the growth in plant-based it comes from people like you, David, the folks that are saying, hey, I'm going to, my doctor told me to cut it back. I'm going to do that. Or, oh, I get the connection between the environment and my food system. I'm going to lay off the meat and dairy for a day. Just that's where all the growth is coming from. Vegans, I mean, I love them. They're wonderful, but they're a tiny, minuscule part of the planet. And they're not really growing. So none of these products are made for meat vegans. They're all made for the meat eaters that are saying, I can do a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, That's great. Okay, so cultured meat, big, fun, and exciting. And I love to talk about these things, but let's be realistic. That's at least a 10-year time frame. So hold on to your bootstraps, everybody. You're not (laughs) going to see that right in your grocery store in any real fashion. Again, we started at the beginning of this conversation talking about the mistake that plant-based made for not having enough infrastructure and capacity. You're going to see a really tough scale up with cultivated meat. It's going to demand a lot of capital spending and still technological innovations, et cetera, to get it at scale. So we have a little bit of a ways to go there, but I'm over the moon, right? I mean, there's animal agriculture goes away when you can feed everyone all of the meat that they want without cutting down trees, without wasting all of our water on the crops for animals, without going through the butchering and slaughtering and pandemic risk of all these animals in factory farms just living on each other's feces. I mean, you get rid of this whole thing, which right now is such a risk to our planet. 
uses a disproportionate amount of our resources, puts us at pandemic risk, just it's making our lives difficult. And it's actually putting our like, gosh, are we going to be able to feed ourselves? And you hear about all the water shortages now. Why are we giving our water to animals? Don't we want it for ourselves? Right. <laughs> Wouldn't it make more sense to to hold on to that water and just use it more sparingly on, on growing crops that just immediately get turned into a burger, not growing crops that give to animals and then they still need more time, more crops, more yeah. it's inefficient. So um so cultivated meat's gonna be like the one and done answer. It's just gonna take a little while. Do you know, are there sustainability issues around cultured meat? I can't say I'm terribly familiar with the process of it. There too. I mean, and here is the beauty, right? You think about when did we last innovate around animal agriculture? Really, we've been doing the same kind of husbandry and stuff for like 4,000 plus years. And then we turned it into intensive factory farming around the 60s. So the industry hasn't budged with very little creativity. Here, you have this innovation curve that's just beginning. So as of right now, my limited understanding, because I'm not a scientist in this area, right. is that cultivated meat does have large electrical use, but all of this is being innovated to be better like right by the day i'll give you an example around six months ago one of the ways that they were growing the cells in these controlled situations was through fetal bovine serum which is very expensive it also kind of defeats the purpose because it comes from the fetus so you're going in there and getting the fetus yeah. like wait a minute i thought why are we doing this not to be clear you do that with very few animals. So the amount of animals is enormously reduced, mm. but still can't we innovate for better six months down the road. We don't have that anymore. So this innovation curve for cultivated meat already innovating on a daily basis. Now, the trick is not the innovation, but the scale. Yeah. We still got to get that to scale so that cultivated meat is what you have around the world. And you think about beyond animals and the rest of it, you think about, well, hey, you know, maybe right, like right now we ship live and dead animals, but also live, which is kind of freaky. Mm. We ship them from the US to China, pigs from Australia to the Middle East with sheep. It could happen that every country or maybe every state has its own cultivated meat lab. And so you save all this energy by not shipping mm -hmm. meat around the world, which makes no sense, you know? So lots of- Do you have any idea, I know this is not your necessarily expertise, but I'm just curious if you do know off the top of your head, what, how long does it take to, to make a cultured meat, make cultured meat? Is yeah. this like months long process? Yeah, here's what I know. And again, this won't even be true in six months sure, from now, yeah. right? They will have been better, for better, yeah. but- Right now, the cells duplicate every two days, whereas like with precision fermentation, which is something we can talk about if no one knows what that is, that process is like duplication every two hours. Oh so with fermented proteins yeah, is... and biomass proteins, yeah. So that is so like the layman's term. So if you take a gene from a database, so you don't even need to go to an animal to get the gene because there's scientific databases everywhere. But you go to a scientific database and you say, hey, I would like the gene for how cows make milk protein, like whey or casein. You get that gene. And then for lack of a better expression, you map it onto a microbe. And the microbe, this living, breathing organism that is neither animal nor plant, it can read the cliff notes. And it says like, oh, I get it. You're telling me to make casein. Well, if you give me some sugar water and feed me so I grow, I'll do it. I'll do exactly what you want. And I'll make you that animal protein of casein or whey. So then the microbe does that and it doubles every two hours and you're growing and you add fat and sugar, you have ice cream. Mm -hmm. So you have that ice cream without the cow. Mm. dairy without the cow. It's a technical process for sure. And that also needs to scale up, yeah. but it can happen pretty quickly. And same with biomass fermentation, with the help of microbes, you can ferment with microbial fermentation, mushrooms and other vegetables and start growing 
meat-like alternatives pretty quickly they grow in biomass. I think the CEO of Nature's Find, who was Thomas Jonas, who was on the Plant-Based Business Hour, said that, oh shoot, it's either a day and a half or half a day, you can grow the same amount of meat through biomass fermentation that you can from a cow in a year and a half. Wow. So you're now you see why food security is such an issue. This would be this kind of innovation is wonderful. Yeah, a hundred percent. I have so many questions and I'm not going to get to a fraction of them that it's really bumming me out. <laughs> this is really great. So I want to come to a couple of things. I'm going to mention them, but I'll ask another question first and hopefully you'll remind me if I forget to come back to them. So I want to talk about plant-based dairy alternatives and yeah. well, I guess it's two subsets of the same topic, like milk alternatives versus like cheese alternatives. And then before that though, I'm curious the to to my mind anyway, like the, I'm wondering if you agree with this, that the commercialization and the industrialization of farming is what really like scares me and I think is responsible for a lot of the problems that we're facing, environmental and sustainability problems in our food systems and how the effects of that are far just beyond the actual direct impact that has, but also the indirect impact of like, we're just so far removed from understanding our food systems anymore and like what it takes for the, like what the food that we put in our mouths went through to get to us. And that that lack of awareness and understanding is why we have so many people who consume without any regard for the impact. I think I'm sure that there would still be people eating whatever they wanted if they knew fully the extent of what was going on and their food for that food to get to them, including the animal abuse and environmental impact, but I think it would be significantly reduced a lot more than it is now. Do you agree with that? Is that? I do. I think it's Sir Paul McCartney who said, if factory farms had glass walls, everybody would be Uh vegan. The industry works really hard to make sure you don't know about it. So I'll just tell people, well, maybe I'll make a guess. Okay. Or ask, I'll ask you to guess. Okay. We talked about there's 7.7 billion people on the planet. David, take a guess how many animals are in factory farms this year, and then of course they're all killed and got next year, except if you're a chicken, it's like every quarter, not every year. But just right now, how many animals do you think are in factory farms? It's more than there are people. And it's probably yeah. considerably ten more. Times ten more. times, yeah. 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 Ten times. So just That's under bananas. eight billion people on the planet. Eighty billion Ugh, animals in factory farms. So I think it's hard for people to under this, understand the scale of what we're talking about. So we're talking about an enormous scale of suffering, but that's why we're also talking about enormous scale of like water pollution, deforestation, like, and that also speaks to the inefficiency. Why are there so many animals? Because they're poor converters of protein. So that's why you need so much more of them to get an output that you can actually feed to people. Let me give you some numbers so what I'm saying makes more sense. According to the World Resources Institute, it takes seven to nine calories of crops fed to a chicken to get one calorie of chicken. It takes 25 to 35 calories of crops to get one calorie of beef. Now, who wants to spend $2.50 to get a dime back? It's bad investment. These are really inefficient models and we just can't get these bad calorie conversion ratios anymore because they take too much of our water, land, time, and trees. So I think if people understood the scale and if they saw the suffering and if they understood the risk that comes from 90% of the planet is in a factory farm. Yeah. I mean, think about in COVID, everybody was like, okay, you have to social distance, social distance. of the living, breathing planet is living butt to snout in their own feces. That's so awful. You're never going to outrun a pandemic. Yeah. So awful. For me, what what really rings home on the animal cruelty side is that our industrial farming is much like, I I can't help but feel like animals are in the matrix. Like, you uh, Keanu Reeves wakes, pulls himself out and realizes, oh, they're just literally growing us humans to be for energy. In our case, we're growing them for consumption and they're literally just being bred and then raised and slaughtered for consumption at such a scale and with such ruthlessness and efficiency that it's really just so disturbing at a deeply fundamental level. And especially when you start to realize how little we understand about animal consciousness. And so like understanding, this is just one example, but like how 
little we understand about oct octopus and how capable <laughs> yeah. they are in, of intelligence and emotion. It's just, it's mind boggling what we're doing. And so for me, that's been a real motivator for even, I would say probably a primary motor motivator above and beyond the environmental impact. And I think the environmental, our environmental situation is a an existential crisis. It speaks to the volume of the pain and suffering that we're causing. A hundred percent. And I'm forgetting the exact title now, but this has been studied for quite some time. We don't know the full extent of animal consciousness, mm -hmm. smartness, etc. But we do know quite a bit. We know enough to know they shouldn't be in factory farms. So since the time of Charles Darwin, so Charles Darwin actually wrote a book on animal feeling, understanding. And again, I'm forgetting the exact title. But, you know, so that's quite a while ago, more than 150 years. We do know quite a bit, even if it's not enough. We know that cows have families pigs sing to their young pigs can are smart enough to unlock a lock with their tongue there's a, an enormous bond between mother and baby cow and the dairy system is built on breaking that bond that's the only purpose of that system i never thought because i too was like everybody else i didn't know that much about my food system i didn't realize this is so stupid i'm just smashing myself not anybody else I didn't realize that cows needed to be pregnant to make milk. I just kind of felt like they right. always had milk. I didn't realize that they were constantly impregnated and then their babies taken away so that we take the milk instead of the baby. I just didn't know the whole I thing. also didn't know that for most of my life either. So I think there's probably a lot of people who don't know that. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm back to, okay, I've got 30 years on the planet. How can I make the most impact helping as many people, planet, animals, in the swift way as possible. And that's plant-based innovation. Okay. So I want to talk to you about your kind of your background and how you kind of got to where you are now, like what sparked this all. Two quick things that I wanted to touch on just before I forget and we don't circle back to them. So one is, I. so I'll comment on this however you like. I'm a, one of the easiest things I did and actually is just, I'm much, much happier for it. It's actually better is milk. I find superior to dairy, like to cow milk maybe not for every single thing i've po every possible use case but i use it for my coffee for like frothing the for cappuccinos and all that and uh, i drink a lot of espresso based drinks and it's just like it's superior it froths better it tastes better it's got kind of a nutty flavor to it so i'm that's a big like just plug for anybody who's looking for easy wins i found that the easiest switch possible and then the other thing i was going to mention and just allow you to comment on either of these things however you like is i'm very excited about and i feel like the cheese sort of alternatives to animal cheeses aren't great for me right now I think they're not bad but they feel like they've got a way to go i'm curious if there are kind of and i have i've heard of and seen some kind of innovations in that coming down the pipe in the in that space and i'm just wondering if you've got any thoughts yeah Oat milk, yay, like done and done. Yeah. It's like easy, great functions. You've got functionality, you got taste, you got like check, check on environment and animals. Like, let's move on. Right. That's great. <laughs> so, cheese, yeah, tricky business. We're still innovating here. We've got options. Are they where we want them to be? Not yet. That precision fermentation we were talking about, getting that cow protein without involving the cow and the long life cycle of the cow and all the farming for the cow, just getting the what you need, that can be used to make cheese as well as ice cream or Amazing. what have you. So a lot of folks are working on really cheese without the cow. And I do think that has maybe six years to go. So oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> we have we have a little bit of time, but in our lifetime, like in the foreseeable future, that is coming. Meanwhile, you still have better plant-based cheeses coming out all the time. Right. I mean, I know right now they're not where we want them, but there's better and better ones coming out all the time. I really like Violice. I think they do an incredible Parmesan cheese. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I really like is them. Violice or Violice? Vi as in V, Violice. Yep. I really like them. I'm going to put some of this stuff in the show notes after. So folks who are listening, you'll be able to find it there. Okay. Yeah. I'd love to circle back and talk a little bit about like, tell me, tell us your origin story. How did you, where did you come from and how did you kind of get interested in all this stuff? Yeah. So I'll take you back. Yeah, please. Like my earliest memory as a kid is that I couldn't eat meat, just couldn't chew it. I just couldn't do it. And of course I'm like five, six years old. Really. It's a very early memory. 
And I couldn't tell you why. I had no understanding about factory farms, didn't know anything. But I mean, I would just immediately start gagging. And I was just like, this is wrong. I don't, but not wrong as in like morally, but just like, this isn't going to work for me, folks. Mm. So my folks who love me, I love them back. There's no problem. They were like, oh my God, our kid's going to die. She's not eating meat. Oh my God. So they said, you have to eat that meat or you can't leave the table. But I wasn't kidding around and I didn't leave the table. So I would be there for three hours by myself and the whole family would go and be together. They'd watch Mm. TV. They'd be laughing. I'd be sitting alone in like the side room off the kitchen because I, I just couldn't do it. So then I started hiding the meat like under my seat and in my pants pockets and I dig out all the garbage, put all the meat in and then put all the garbage back. Well, okay. So my folks caught me lying and then they really punished me and they sent me to my room for lying to them. And again, everyone in the family would be out hanging out together and I'd be in my room. Again, I love my parents. They love me back. They are just thought I was being capricious and not appreciating. Mm -hmm. Fast forward, I'm an adult in my twenties and I have a voice and I know how to use it, but I have this memory of like, nope, you have to eat meat. So sometimes I'd be out with friends and we'd order pepperoni pizza and I'd be like, gosh, pepperoni, do we have to do it, you guys? And everybody, like today, we would call this bullying. Everybody'd be like, oh, you're such a tree Mm -hmm. hugger. And I'd be like, I can't believe this. Like, here we are adults. Now we all know about factory farming. And you're making fun of me because this is something you're okay with? I mean, I was like, what's going on here? Because everyone's seen a video at some point in their life, right? Nobody really doesn't know. Right. I mean, they don't know the full extent, maybe, but we've all, I mean, we all kind of know. So I was like, okay, I guess this is what it means to be an adult. You do that which you know is wrong, you do it anyway. And when you have to, you make fun of doing the right thing because it's just easier to do the wrong. I mean, I was like, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. So this stayed with me, obviously. Then fast forward. Now here I'm way into my 40s. You think I would have figured this out by myself, but I'd had that experience as a kid and I couldn't get over it. I'm way into my 40s. My nephew comes back from college. He's an athlete, plays for the University of Oregon. He's on the football extended team. So he's not a football player, but he's a mascot for the university. He's the duck for the University of (laughs) Oregon. And the duck has same athletic coach that the football players have. So he comes back Thanksgiving, sits down at the table with a big turkey. And he's like, oh, yeah, coach says, if I'm going to play for the team, no meat, no dairy. I was like, what the flip? You got a professional. You got an adult professional to tell you what I've known Mm -hmm. all along for 40 years, that this is not what your body wants. I was vegan mid-sentence, but it took me to my 40s. Wow. So once I made that switch, I was like, well, obviously, I'm only going to use my skill set for this. So I switched all my consulting work. I switched all my journalism podcasting work. I switched all of that. And once I switched, I realized that where the industry needed me most, because I was consulting and I was finding all these white spaces in the plant-based business sector for multinational companies, my clients, et cetera. When I was doing that, I was like, oh, I see a white space and it's an investable one. That's why I'm going to start an ETF because I wanted the Eat V ETF. I wanted to invest in it. I wanted, for those who don't know, an ETF is like a basket of stock. Like you go to the grocery store and you don't want to only eat cereal. You want to have lettuce and eggplant and plant-based burgers. And you have this basket of things in the grocery store. Well, same here, according to a theme. So like for us, it's plant-based innovation. You can have 40 companies and this diversified basket of all of these companies up and down the supply chain. So you're diversified, which means you're not, it's not so risky. You're not just waiting on one company to make it. You've, you can kind of weigh out the balances and it's easy. You buy it on Robinhood. And if you wanted to sell it, you could sell it three months later. It's it's liquid. It's easy. It's diversified. You don't have to do a lot of work. It's one-stop shopping. And I was like, well, I want that. Why can't I get that? And when I was doing the research to find out, okay, in my estimation, they're for more than 40 companies around the globe that are innovating to shift the global food supply system away from animals. And they're up and down the supply chain at all stages of business. Everything here is ready for an ETF. And I thought, okay, BlackRock's probably going to do it. And I waited and I was like, oh yeah, BlackRock's never going to do this because they don't care about it. And the meat industry is impactful 
and nobody wants to upset the meat industry. And I realized like, okay, the traditional financial institutions aren't going to do it. It's, and which means, and if they do it, they won't do it right. They'll do it and include McDonald's, which you got to watch out folks that when you are looking at your ESG investments, make sure they're really ESG. We talked about Tyson on the Bloomberg financial media. Bloomberg says that 512 ESG funds have Tyson in them. That's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Got to know your ESG, right? And that's why we were saying like, oh, my partner and I, Dr. Sasha Goodman from Stanford University, he's the fund manager. We were like, okay, not only are they not going to do it, if they do it, they're going to do it wrong. So we better right. get in there. <laughs> and that's how Eat V came to be. Awesome. Well, let's talk about it. So wh- when did it launch? It launched December 28th of 2021. Awesome. And as you said, an ETF is short for an exchange traded fund. These are baskets of, in this case, stocks. It can They can hold other securities, but in your case, it's a stock ETF and they trade on exchanges. And so they're like mutual funds, but just tend to be a little more liquid. The daily liquidity, you can trade in and out within a day if you want to. Ideally, you're not doing that frequently, you're not trading that frequently. But, but what you've done with yours is that yours is focused specifically on, and I'll just read the, the description from your website. So it's designed to seek long-term growth through a portfolio of high growth global equities. So meaning global stocks in a pure play plant-based innovation and technology category. So meaning you're not going to get other types of companies that are doing other types of things. I mean, they, it's really focused on plant-based innovation and, and technology rather than hey, these companies do a lot of different things and they've got a lot of different business interests. And one of the small lines of business happens to be some plant-based innovation. Is that right? Correct, 100%. Okay. And one of the problems, as you mentioned, is that right now, if you look at the ETF landscape, lots of climate ETFs or environmentally focused ETFs, but nothing focused specifically on kind of the food system and finding plant-based alternatives. Yeah, and the food system is one of the major levers for climate change. In fact, you will not sufficiently impact climate change if you don't address animal agriculture. Of course, people can't stop eating. So you're going to have to replace what they were eating before with tastier, better items that are low cost, if at parity at least, or, or lower in cost. That's why we invest in those companies that are doing that. But in doing so, you also greatly impact the climate. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I'm also just before I forget here, I'm going to give the obligatory. This is none of this is investment advice. You should go speak to your financial advisor and think about how this an investment in, in, in EV would fit into your portfolio and what the right kind of allocation and amounts are. But with that out of the way, so you have about 40 holdings in the in the ETF. And what you did, you actually went and this is so this is a passive ETF, right? Because you've created along with Morningstar, I believe, an index that the ETF then tracks. Is that right? No. No. Okay. <laughs> I have that wrong. Okay. So this is an actively managed ETF. It has to be because the sector is so dynamic. And the reason I know it's dynamic is because I create I created the sector. With the launch of EatV, not only do we have this ETF, so this product that people could buy, this financial product that you can just get in there and buy online, but we defined a completely new impact investment category because prior to us launching, Wall Street only knew about alternative energy or electric vehicles, but they didn't know that there was a sector you could invest in to impact the climate through food. So we have created this completely new impact sector called plant-based innovation. And in that sector, we're the only product, (laughs) Eat V. It's a very dynamic market. So we are actively managing it, which means like if an IPO comes up tomorrow, we can go and buy it. Or if, you know, something's performing better, we can tweak those numbers. So it's heavier weighted in the basket of funds. So we don't track an index. Now that said, we have a non-tracking index. So we don't track it, But it's a benchmark for the sector. So when we launched this product, what we really did is tell Wall Street, hey, there's a completely new impact investable sector. If you want to just generally understand it, you can go look at that index because it'll kind of tell you like what's going on in the sector. It'll give financial people like benchmarks, benchmarks. So it gives people an understanding of the sector that we just launched. But the actual and those are for institutions to look at and follow and maybe launch something similar to it. But for the individual retail person, the EV is the only thing that that they can touch. They don't touch the index, which is for institutions, and it is actively managed. 
Okay, great. So that makes a lot of sense then. And the index that you created as a benchmark for your actively managed ETFs. And so for, for folks listening, passive investment strategies, I mean, there is an index already of stocks or bonds or whatever the investments are. And then the, the ETF or the mutual fund just tracks that interest tries to match it exactly. Whereas actively managed means that there's a, an investment manager picking and choosing which, which investments to make and what kind of allocations and weights you if we want to get technical, you, there's also quantitative strategies, which are done by largely by, by computers and algorithms, but, but it's actively making choices about which ones to hold and passive means you just copy the index. So this is an actively managed ETF, but there is a benchmark that you've created so that those who want to either kind of compare your ETF to a benchmark and see how it's performed can do that. Are you also allowing, will you eventually license the index to other investment products that want to either follow it or um, yes. invest in it? Yeah, we do. So any institutions that are interested in this sector and want to create something of their own, definitely come reach out and we can talk about licensing that. No problem. Cool. Okay. So there's about, I was just taking a quick look at the whole things. It looks like there's about 40 or so names. Is that right? In the yeah, ETF? 41. Yeah. Okay. Could you talk a little bit about how you, how the, those uh, names are selected and weighted in the portfolio? Yeah, a hundred percent. For us, you have to be innovating to replace. It isn't good enough to just say, oh, I don't have any animal products because that would leave you with things like MasterCard and Microsoft. And I don't think investing in Amazon is really going to impact the food supply system. And we really want to make all the things that we've talked about today a reality. So reducing climate change and food security issues, et cetera. We, you must actively be innovating to replace animal products. And we look at companies up and down the supply chain. So first we start with ag tech. So those kind of vertical farms and greenhouses and sustainable fertilizers that are helping to grow more vegetables, right? Ultimately, we want to get more vegetables and more vegetable ingredients like mung bean and fava bean and chickpea and soy and wheat, those things too. But these alternative proteins that we can get into plant-based products or just directly right into people's mouths. You know, like I still eat rice and beans. So right. <laughs> I don't have to have a burger all the time. I still eat that kind of stuff. These things that at the very beginning of the supply chain, they really um, help to start on a good foot. Then the next sector that we invest in is innovation and technology. So those companies that are working on fermented proteins, precision fermentation, cultivated meat, and they're starting to license their IP to others who can start innovating with these products so that we have these options down the road 10 years from now. Very cool work. We invest there. Then we invest in ingredients. So novel ingredients like salva bean and chickpea and those ingredient companies around the world that are working on bringing us more options. Ultimately, the consumer deserves a lot of options. Anywhere from the healthy burger to the really decadent plant-based burger, they should have it all. So having lots of ingredient options is key. Then we invest in the flavor and technology companies, so those companies that are working to actually make these things taste good mm -hmm. and license that to IP. So companies like Givaudan out of Switzerland are really working on this. Like some of the ingredient companies are Ingredion and MGP Ingredients. And so just great companies there. And finally, we get to the end of the road. It's those consumer packaged goods that you know, Oatly and Beyond Me, but also some growth companies in Canada. And then not many, because you know, got to really make sure solid companies. So we don't invest in everything out of Canada, but we do invest in, in, in some. And then Vitasoy out of Hong Kong, which makes soy milk and tofu. So we've got those. And then we have one more category. Ultimately, we want a sustainable food supply system, but also a sustainable materials supply system. So we have about 12% of the fund that's in alternative materials, replacing animal products with plant-based oils. So I think of the makeup company Elf. They have replaced all animal oils. Yes, animal oils are in makeup. And then you're putting that makeup on your face. So they have replaced animal oils with plant-based oils. That's like one example of we are trying to clean up our supply chains, mostly in food, but also in other areas. So it shakes out to, oh, give or take like 15% ag tech, maybe like 4% novel technologies because that's still growing, as we discussed, probably about 70% food and 12% 
materials somewhere in there. Okay. That's a really great rundown. Thank you. You mentioned a few of the, so in your top holdings, I think the top five are ingredient, sentient, Jivodan, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Dole and Yara International. So you, I think you mentioned quickly Jivodan and Ingredient. Are th those are companies, as you mentioned, working on making things taste better. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So in yeah, Ingredion's working on all those novel ingredients. And they're, this is what I love to see with a company like Ingredion and also AB InBev. I'll talk about why Anheuser-Busch yeah, is Yeah, I was going to ask about them. <laughs> yeah, can't wait to get to that. Yeah, so they're also not only just supplying novel ingredients for the base products to be different and better and healthier, but they're also providing their R&D and expertise. Ingredion's an enormous country and a company in countries all around the world. But they're helping companies like Notco out of Chile to scale. These small, we talked about this in the beginning, like these plant-based companies need to scale up. They need to have R&D behind them. They need to have manufacturing behind them. And Ingredion really lends itself to that. So does AB InBev, which is not in the top 10, but First of all, Anheuser-Busch, their beers are vegan, so that's fantastic. But really what's more important is that who knows about fermenting better than Anheuser-Busch? And they're taking their R&D and they're helping companies like the Every Company, which does animal-free egg whites, and Perfect Day, which does those non-animal proteins we talked about in ice cream and cheese. They're giving them their R&D to help them scale up and they're giving them their coat co-manufacturing capabilities to scale up. And they're also taking that spent barley after they've made the beer and they're upcycling it, not to animal feed, because that would just be supporting the old system we're trying to replace. They're doing things like working with take two barley milk and they're upcycling to make barley milk. So this is the kind of innovation and thought leadership we like to see from these large multinationals. And there are a couple like that that are really forward thinking and we want them in there because they are really an example to others. Like you can be innovating for a shift in the global food supply system. You don't have to do things the way they always were. I'll talk about one other thing that you might say like Tesla. Mm -hmm. that, I was going to ask Tesla about Tesla too, sure. In there. <laughs> yeah. Tesla's in there because despite uh, he's a tad crazy, but he, it's in there because Tesla was the first car company to say that's it only vegan leather. And by replacing animal leather, they forced Mercedes-Benz and BMW to replace 50% of their animal leather with vegan leather. Now, animal leather is second only, or automobile level leather is second only to shoe leather in terms of what kind of quantity is out there, not just the animals used, but think about a tannery. So, you know, not an environmental practice. So, to see Tesla shift the whole car industry, BMW and Mercedes-Benz, to be away from animal products, very thought leadership driven and a leader in the space. So we like to see that, just as I was saying with AB InBev and Ingredion, we like to see these large companies use their knowledge for something good to shift. So that's why they're in. Okay, cool. They're part of the materials 12, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious, are you, where do you, what countries are you finding the most innovation coming from? Well, for sure it's the US, yeah. right? We start there. A lot coming out of Canada, but we have countries around the world represented Israel and Hong Kong and Thailand with Taiwa, which is an ingredient company, which is a great company. Canada, for sure. We've got kind of the whole world represented, but I want to say that we're high 70s U.S. and like low 20s for the global companies. Okay. But I should say to that. Israel is doing incredible work. So mm. is Singapore. We've talked about that. They were the first country to regulate cultivated chicken and nothing to scale. I think it's one restaurant and one delivery app. They have these cultivated chicken from Good Meat, which is a subsidiary of Eat Just, but Israel as well. And Israel's doing something so smart that I wish the U.S. would do. They're taking government funding. They're taking university know-how, they're taking passionate entrepreneurs, and they're taking dedicated individual investors. And they're putting all of that brain power and money and creativity together, and they're advancing really quickly and leading the world. In fact, it's Israel that invests the most out of any country in alternative proteins. Well, that's amazing. I had no idea. Yeah, it's their venture. I should say it's the most from venture. I, their government's probably tied with Holland for 
investing the most from government perspective, okay. but from like the joint venture, they've got the most coming out of Israel. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Okay. In the interest of time and where we're at here, I would love to just ask if you, are there things that you wish I would have asked about that are interesting and you think people should know about? Oh gosh, that's probably the toughest question <laughs> of the whole hour. And um, don't, no pressure if that's too big a can of worms, because I'm sure this is such a big, diverse space that we could talk for hours and hours, obviously. So no pressure if you can't. But if there is an area that you think is, hey, like okay. people should know more I've about got this. One. Yeah. I've got two, actually. And I'll just Please. give little like sound bites and then we can either pick up later or inflation. So according to the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics, don't ask me why they're the ones that measure this, but they're the ones that measure this. Meat prices are up 14.3%, whereas fruits and vegetables and legumes, these ingredients that make plant-based foods, they're up like only 7 to 8%. Why is that? Well, we talked about the inefficiency of this industry. Water's coming more expensive, the travel times, the all of this kind of stuff making the industry inefficient. So I think that's Interesting to note because so many people say like, oh, but it's more expensive. Mm -hmm. That price gap is shrinking yeah. with the innovation coming online, with the scaling and with just the cost of the inputs of goods that is shrinking. And I'll also say something else. It You might leave this conversation thinking like, oh, there's only some people that really want to change the system and it's flexitarians, these meat eaters that are stepping back from some meat, but oh, hey, that's just that group of people. No, actually, the reason why this is going to succeed, and I'm so happy to see an empowered consumer, but it's not the consumer. Mm. It's not the vegans, the vegetarians, or the people who are listening to their doctor and making a change once or twice a week. They're good. Together, they make a sizable community, like 30%. That's not enough. The reason that this is a viable industry is because industry isn't squashing them. Industry wants a biz better business line. It's too risky to be in animal agriculture. Mm -hmm. Now, you can't change tomorrow. It's an enormous system. You're going to have to drive the car while you're turning it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to have to continue to feed people while you're making changes. The financial risk of, oh gosh, are we the ones that do the next antibiotic resistance problem, the next pandemic? The, with information, people are realizing about animal welfare, like oh, the health implications because saturated fat and all this stuff. So they also want cleaner labels. They also want to shift. So you put these two things together, you've got industry spending on innovation and they're starting to do more and more like Hormel, JBS, Danone, Nestle, these folks are all getting into JBS, JBS, yeah, they're all getting into this. So those two things together, I really don't think it's undeniable that it's shifting. Mm. Okay. Then my very last thing that yeah, I'll say, please. this is just a personal thing I want to say, is that we talked about the scale of the animal agriculture. So 10 times more factory farmed animals than people on earth. So please, folks, do the math in your head. When the label says humane, it's mathematically not possible. Mm -hmm. It's just mathematically not possible that the bulk of us buying a humane label is feasible when 99% of all the animals are in factory farms. So just, yeah. I know that everybody can't switch today. Just do what David does. Switch like one day a week or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of my, when people talk about just writ large sustainable investing and impact investing and wanting to make a positive impact. And they start looking at their portfolios and they start asking questions and realize just how messy and complicated this all is. It sometimes is yeah, discouraging absolutely. for them. And I, my the very first thing I say yeah. when we're working with folks on their investment portfolios is like the, don't make perfect the enemy of the good. Your portfolio yes. will not be perfect. It never will be. And so let's just throw that notion out the window. Now, what steps can we take? to make improvements yeah. and make them as efficiently and as, as quickly as possible. But it's, and 10 years from now, your portfolio is going to be a lot better than it is now because the availability of products. And so examples like this, the ETF coming out is an example of, hey, there's going to be new products and new ways to, to align your money with your values and make a positive impact. I just want to say, I think, you know, what you're doing here. I mean, we spoke when you were in the idea phase and trying to get this off the ground. And I know that was a ton of time, effort and energy that went into it. And I just applaud you. The world needs people like you who are doing the, you know, putting in the hard work. And of course, there's a, there's a business opportunity there, but, you know, 
that I don't think that alone gets you through the many years you've been at this in the industry in, in all sorts of different fashions. So anyway, it's not a platitude. I genuinely mean we need more people like you. And I thanks for all your hard work and, and education on this. Oh, so kind of you. I'm just so grateful that people care about this. Yeah. That people are willing to switch out a meal here and there, that everyone's doing what they can. I agree with you. Let's not make perfect the enemy of good. Anything you can do is excellent. Just take, it's baby steps. Take one step in front of the other and anything counts. Anything matters. 100%. Well, with that, we'll let you get back to your day. And thank you so much, Elizabeth. I'll have show notes, links in the show notes to the to your website and to your podcast and the Eat v ETF page and all that. Anyone who's listening, feel free to visit the show notes and you'll get all the links there. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for having me. And if anybody has any questions, you just come find me on LinkedIn. I'm always available and accessible. So happy to chat with anybody. And David, it's been really great to chat with you. Super appreciate it. Yeah, same. We'll do it again. And we'll, in the future, we'll come back and do an update and kind of talk about the developments that have happened since the last podcast. And I'll be really excited to, to note the innovations that have come out. Oh, beautiful. Well, thank you for having me. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, you can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, Hey Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.